have your Bibles tonight, please take them with me and turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Tonight we will read verses 31 through 46. A good day in so many respects that we've already had and I pray that we will end this day meditating on the glories of Christ who is our compassionate Savior. Begin reading with me, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or Thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Join me briefly as I pray. Father God, we love you. As we hear your word proclaim, Lord, help us to love you more. Father, we believe in you. And so help our unbelief. Lord, we seek to serve you, but nothing could be so great, Lord, as how you have served us. Through Jesus Christ, our living Lord. And so, Lord, we merely pray that we would be yours. That you would use us, Lord, for the glory of your name in all things that we might be vessels of your compassion for your glory in this world. In your name we ask it. Amen. I thought it would be good for us to close this day where we have focused on orphan care by coming to this passage here in Matthew 25. And what we have here is the final lesson of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. You remember his disciples asked him about the end times. 
And as he was there on the Mount of Olives, he began to speak to them about what things would be like in the last days. And that section concludes with this very story about the final judgment at the end of chapter 25. You know, as we think about these passages, or particularly this passage, at first glance it seems to support the idea that if we do good things for people in need, we will go to heaven. But that opinion fails to deal with some some of the very critical markers that are given in this text. Biblically, we want to understand that Christ does indeed encourage us to manifest righteous behavior and to do good works. But we must understand that our labors are not what secures our righteous standing before God. Rather, our good works are evidences of the fact that Christ has secured our right standing before a holy God. And that's really what we see going on in this text. I'm not going to treat this passage extensively. Rather, tonight, I want us to look at four aspects of compassion that are revealed here by Jesus as he discusses the manner in which he will make the final judgment. And I hope that as we understand his teaching on compassion, we will see in that the very heart of our Savior that we are privileged to manifest as his beloved adopted children. So the first thing we want to consider tonight is the substance of compassion. The substance of compassion. We see very quickly here that that as Jesus comes in his glory, the angels around him, he sits on his throne. Everyone is gathered before him. He separates them, the sheep from the goats. And then he pronounces his judgment. The righteous are rewarded and the wicked are condemned upon the evidence of six works of compassion. And these six works of compassion are repeated four different times in this text. Twice by the Lord and once by each of the groups he is speaking to. And we see that he says, for I was hungry and you gave me some food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. You gave me shelter. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. Four of those six things represent the most basic of human needs, right? God has made us his image bearers. But as his image bearers, even though we are made in his image, we are very dependent creatures. We are creatures that require certain things to simply exist. And we all know from experience what it is to need these things from one degree or another. When we are hungry, we require food to eat. We need food to nourish our bodies. When we are thirsty, we require drink or we will become dehydrated. We require shelter from the elements, from the heat, from the cold, from at night, from predators. And we require clothing to cover our nakedness. So food, drink, shelter, clothing, these are what the righteous provided. And it is apparent from the context that they provided them not just to those whom they knew well or those that they were somehow related to, but even to complete strangers. They additionally performed two acts of compassionate service. When they encountered sickness, they were faithful to visit and care for those who were ill. 
And when persons were put in prison, they also went to comfort them and to meet their needs. Now, that's not an exhaustive list of compassionate acts, but I think they are two very representative actions in their historical context at this time that represent the core of what it means to actively display concern and compassion for others. In other words, they represent a heart and substance of love in action. This is what the righteous were commended for. And what the unrighteous were condemned for not doing. So that's the substance of compassion. That then leads us to my second point, which is the subjects of compassion. Who is this compassion displayed to? As Jesus speaks of these particular acts, he singles out those whom these acts were performed for. If we look at verse 40, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. He mentions the least of them again in verse 45. And so Jesus is very clearly referring to those who have specifically trusted in him as Savior and Lord. We who have repented of our sins and believed in Christ are his brothers and sisters down to the very least of us, down to the youngest and most immature. The language here harkens back to Matthew 18 where Jesus referred to his little ones three different times there. His little ones, the least of these, refers to those whom he has saved by grace through faith. So the subjects of the compassion being spoken of here are disciples of Christ. And biblically speaking, we understand from this that we have a particular calling to display godly compassion and service to our brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, as we think about who we are to be in this world, we kind of need to understand that that we have concentric circles of responsibility that are really based on relationship and proximity, right? Probably in that, not probably, but definitely in that first circle, we are called to, to, to labor, to support, to love, to show compassion, to meet the needs for those in our own immediate family. That's an obligation that Scripture puts directly upon us. This is part of honoring our father and mother. This is part of caring for our, our family. If not, we're considered worse than an unbeliever. And then as we move out from those circles, we are also to respond to the human need around us as we look at where our churches are planted, who is in our church, what is the makeup of our church family, and who is in need there in terms of our spiritual family of faith. Who are other believers in proximity to us that maybe aren't in our own spiritual family here at Morning View, but are still our brothers and sisters in Christ in need. We move out from there into the next circle and we look at our own community where God has placed us, in our own neighborhoods, in, in, in our own direct spheres of influence. Who are those that are in need there? And so when we think in those terms, we see, brothers and sisters, that there are needs all around us. But it begins first and foremost with looking to the family of faith. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. James 2, 14 through 17, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? 
Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. In 1 John 3, 16-18, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So, brothers and sisters, we are called to give special consideration to helping and serving fellow believers in need. But that also does not negate the call to likewise act compassionately towards all men. As Jesus taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even when our neighbor is someone that we humanly perceive to be our enemy. And and as, as we think about that, we need only to consider how Christ himself is our beautiful and wonderful example in this. Think of how Jesus did this. Jesus showed tenderness and love and patience and welcome to prostitutes, to tax gatherers, to adulterers, to myriads of people who were sick and crippled and the outcast of society. He went out of his way, in fact, to engage the outcast of his society, the lepers that people kept at a distance, the blind and the beggarly that were left at the side of the road. He went out of his way to speak into their lives, to show them compassion, to bring them healing. He even showed compassion to certain Roman soldiers who were part of a pagan force occupying his homeland. He fed thousands when they had nowhere else to go, knowing that many of those thousands of people were just there selfishly. They were there just to see a sign, just to see a miracle, not because they were particularly drawn to the godliness of his teaching. Jesus, out of his compassion, wept over Jerusalem and his people's hardness of heart. Even his interactions with the Pharisees were driven by his love for them. He met with Pharisees. He even went to dinner in a few of their homes. And he lovingly warned them of how they were far from the kingdom and in danger of God's wrath. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a model of compassion throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels. And we know and understand him to be a model of compassion even in our lives today, don't we? Even today, when we are tempted to think, I've blown it. Jesus wants nothing to do with me. Here, I've given in to my anger again, or I've I've given in to my lust again, or I've given in to my apathy again, and totally lived without thought of God. Even then, Jesus' love for us, his compassion towards us, does not fail. Even our sin cannot drive the Savior from us. Indeed, his heart of compassion leads leads Jesus to draw even nearer to us when we are most filthy in our sin because we are his children and he has determined that he will complete the work that he has begun in us. And so when we think about our Savior, brothers and sisters, he shows us what we are called to be as his children. 
Just like Christ, we are to be preeminent in displaying His love through acts of intentional service and compassion and love in this world. It is part of our spiritual DNA to love people and to care for them as God Himself cares for them. And therefore, it is compassion that marks a true believer. That's what we see being captured in this passage. It's the compassion of Christ that marks the true believer of Christ. But why is that compassion so important? Well, that takes me to my third point. The significance of compassion. We've seen the substance of it, the subjects of it, and now the significance of it. When we actively and compassionately care for one another, we are effectively displaying our love for Christ. Look with me again at verse 40 in your text. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. If we look down in verse 45, he says, says the same thing to those who did not do it. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Brothers and sisters, this shows us again the true basis of Christian love and compassion. As we care for one another and encourage one another and sacrifice for one another and reach out to those whom Christ will draw to himself through acts of service, it is then that we will effectively be loving and serving Christ himself. It will be our privilege to be doing this service unto our Savior. Again, this is one of those truths. It's just amazing to me how I've been meditating on so many different passages, how so often we keep coming back to the significance of our union with Christ in salvation. This is another one of those theological dynamics that is grounded very much in the fact that we are made one with Jesus when we believe in him. This is why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It is because of our union with Christ that Jesus would say earlier in Matthew, Matthew 10 verse 40, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Is this not a glorious and, and humbling thought for us even tonight? Each believer is indwelt by the living Christ. Each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When the Father looks at his beloved children in the faith, he sees his beloved Son. Because with Christ we are one. He abides in us and we abide in Him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we minister to one another, as we are compassionate to one another, we are ministering out of Christ to Christ. Think about that. As we are displays of His love and compassion, we are ministering out of Christ to Christ. 
As we are compassionate to unbelievers, we're establishing potential pathways that our sovereign Holy Spirit will use to proclaim the gospel and draw men and women into Christ. We see this reality is what undergirds Paul's instructions to the Colossian church in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He says there as he's instructing laborers, slaves, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now we want to be careful here, don't we? We want to remember and understand that Christ does not somehow need us to serve him as if he were dependent upon us for anything. He is the one who has come to serve us in salvation and to do everything necessary to secure our right standing before God. Yet, as I said a moment ago, it is our privilege as his children to be vessels of his grace and mercy and compassion to others. It is our privilege as his children to be his body, his hands, his feet in serving others. It is our privilege to minister out of Christ to Christ. But brothers and sisters, there's also a warning in this passage, isn't there? Because the converse is also true. When we fail to love the brethren, when we fail to be compassionate, when we fail to encourage one another and to sacrifice one another as we lay down our lives for one another, when we fail to do those things, we betray the fact that we have no love for Christ in our hearts. Indeed, that is the key warning of this passage. Christ is not telling us here that we will stand justified before God according to whether or not we have shown compassion to people. He is telling us here that when we stand before his judgment seat, the works of our lives will either serve as evidence of our justification in Christ or they will serve as evidence of our rejection of Christ. Let me say that last part again. He's telling us here that when we stand before his judgment seat, the works of our lives will either serve as evidence of our justification in Christ or they will serve as evidence of our rejection of Christ. And that, as we see in the text, is a surprise to both the sheep and the goats. And that's my fourth point. The surprise of compassion. The surprise of compassion. The surprise of the sheep and the goats is a major part of this passage, but it's rarely discussed by commentators. I want us to notice that the sheep and the goats are not surprised at the idea that Christ has come in judgment. They are not even surprised at the fact that Christ is separating them for judgment. What they do find surprising is the fact that they are admitted or excluded on the evidence of how they treated Christ. Again, Christ lists the criteria for them. And then look at verse 37. Look back at verse 37 again. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
we see there the surprise of the sheep at Christ's criteria for judgment. And, and the unbelievers, the unrighteous, have the same surprise. They were also surprised. Look at verse 44. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or, or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They have the same surprise. Their sense of surprise at how Christ is judging them proves that this text does not support the perspective of justification by works. You know, I have the privilege, most of you know, every Thursday, every fourth Thursday of the month, I'm on a local AM radio show where we get to talk about biblical things and all during the year of 2019, uh, five different times I debated a Roman Catholic priest and this was one of his go-to passages to support the Roman Catholic idea that our works will be the basis of our justification on the day of judgment. This is where he wanted to go. That's what he wanted to teach from this passage. But the fact that both the sheep and the goats were surprised at Christ's criteria for judgment proves that that doctrine in Roman Catholicism is absolutely wrong. The righteous did not intentionally show love to the disciples of Christ in order to gain the reward of heaven. That's why they're surprised at what Jesus says. The unrighteous, likewise, are just as surprised that they are denied the reward of heaven on the basis of not showing compassion to the disciples. D.A. Carson says this so well in his commentary. D.A. Carson notes, What we have here is a test that eliminates the possibility of hypocrisy. If the wicked had thought that their treatment of Christians would gain them right standing before God on the day of judgment, they no doubt would have treated them with compassion. But Jesus is concerned with the righteousness of the whole person, the righteousness that comes from the heart. As people respond to his disciples and align themselves with their distresses and afflictions, they align themselves with the Messiah who identifies himself with them. True disciples will love one another and serve the least brother with compassion. In so doing, they unconsciously serve Christ. Those who have little sympathy for the gospel of the kingdom will remain indifferent and in so doing will reject Christians, thereby rejecting Jesus himself. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that the way Jesus is judging here, it really removes all possibility of guile. The evidence of our lives bears out where we stand in relationship to Christ. Those belonging to Christ demonstrate love for Him by loving the brethren, by loving the least of these. And by allowing that love for the brethren to overflow even for the, the lost in this world who, who may become believers. But those who did not belong to Christ, do not belong to Christ rather, demonstrate indifference to Christ by being indifferent to the brethren. Again, think of Paul's words here from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We who are in Christ have died to our former manner of life, our old self is crucified with Christ. 
And we have been raised to walk in a newness of life where we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus in all we do. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that if we are in Christ, we are hardwired by the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling Jesus, to be a compassionate people. I know some of you may, may think to yourselves, as, as I have thought of myself at different times, you know, when, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, you know, Pastor Sean, I, I'm this, this, and this. I rank pretty low on the gift of mercy. And while I understand that, that mercy may not be the strongest gift for many of us here, I want us to understand that by virtue of the Savior who has poured out His mercy on us, it is part of our DNA to be a merciful people. It's something we are more than something merely that we have to do. And once again, brothers and sisters, I would draw our focus, our hearts back to, to see that Christ is both our Savior in this regard and our prime example for this. As we abide with Him, He will give us the desires of our hearts Meaning that our desires will be aligned with His desires. As it says in 2 Peter 1.3, Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christ has already given us everything we need to be a compassionate people in this world. And so our next step is simply to discern which direction Christ is aiming us. He's already made us conduits of His mercy, conduits of His compassion in this world. It's just a matter of discerning where He is aiming us, of discerning what our outlets are for caring for the needy and demonstrating compassion. Today and on Orphan Care Sunday, we've talked a great deal about, about orphan care. It remains a deep need in our community. And I would testify to you, as would any others who are involved, our system, even at our county level, is just it's a broken system. And, and it's hard, and it's one of the most discouraging things about being a foster parent. And yet, the privilege to help and to serve others in these ways is, is glorious. As, as Herbie said this morning, every family is not called to adoption and foster care. Understand that and don't want anyone to feel that that's what we're teaching. But all of us are called to be vessels of compassion and we're equipped for that. And it just may be that some sort of foster ministry involvement is where God would aim you and where God would aim your family. You think about other ways that we minister here in our community. Here in, in Montgomery, Alabama, do you know that we have two times the national average of single moms in our, just in our county alone, in our city alone? That's another way that God is calling us to demonstrate compassion, to support and to help families in need. You, you think about other dynamics that we have right here in our own community. Uh, we, we have a, a, a community that has a large aging portion. I'm, I'm talking even now with, with Laura Aldrich, hoping to meet with her after, the, after this holiday to talk about what more we can do even to help senior adults who, who are in nursing homes and residence facilities that have no one, no one that is caring for them and meeting their needs. 
You think about different things we're talking about even as we go into the new year, even as we seek to revitalize some of our evangelism programs and focusing on who's your one and the idea of who specifically we can be praying for and reaching out to and welcoming into our homes that we may have the privilege of ministering to them, showing them compassion and introducing them to the Savior. But even also things we can do at the community level. One of the things we're looking toward in January is is ministering to our law enforcement. On January uh, 26, coming up, we hope to host a dinner here where we will have the privilege of sharing the gospel with 90 different law enforcement officers that serve here in our city of Montgomery. There are ways all around us, brothers and sisters, we just need to discern again where Christ is aiming us as conduits of his compassion and mercy. It is our spiritual DNA to serve him and to love him by being his vessels in this. This is his law, right? When Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's the the vertical relationship. And horizontally, to love your neighbor as yourself. But even as we think on that beautiful teaching of the law that Christ has given us, I want us to understand that it's the gospel that fuels us to fulfill it. It is the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus Christ is and what he himself has done and how we are one with him that fuels our ministry of mercy, our ministry of compassion in our community. Think about it with me in this way. It is our Lord Christ who holds us in his lap, who hugs us, who holds us near, who gives us his warm embrace, who supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory. And as he holds us and as As he embraces us, it is that beautiful voice of the Savior that says, follow me as we go and reach even more. Come with me as we spread my love abroad, even to the least of these. That is our Savior, brothers and sisters, and it is our joy to serve him in the ministry of compassion.